Welcome to Pivot with Greta Scholes, a conversation with business executives and the effects of change. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. What is this buzzword, buzz term that we keep hearing? Well, it's a term to describe policies and programs that promote the representation and participation of different groups of individuals, including people of different ages, races, ethnicities, abilities, disabilities, genders, and the rest. Today, I want to introduce Jamie Beal Howe. And she has such an interesting background, and she's involved in this, so interesting, and I'll have her talk a little bit about it. As a CEO and founder of JBH Enterprises, a management consultancy focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies, Jamie supports leadership teams on building high-performance cultures. She's always been an influential voice in strengthening organizations committed to social citizenship. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Greta. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. You know, in talking to you, you have um, such an interesting journey that, you know, how you got to this place. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So, Greta, I started my career um, tw- a 20-year span just about in commercial real estate. And commercial real estate is one of those fields that you don't really grow up saying that you want to get into because you don't really know much about it, right? It's not like when you're a little kid and you say, I want to be a singer or a dancer. I want to be a doctor. Commercial real estate is one of those fields that you kind of just fall into. But I spent 20 years managing commercial assets for publicly traded investment trusts for 20 years in that D.C., uh, Baltimore area until I moved to Florida about nine years ago. And I loved it. Managing properties is like owning your own business. You're managing the budgets, you're managing the teams, you're managing the assets, you're managing the day-to-day. And I loved, loved, loved it. But one thing that I noticed is that the higher up that I went throughout the organization, when I got to a certain level, I looked around and I was the only black person, male or female, in a VP or higher role. And I thought, well, I can't be that cool to be the only. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true. I, I'm not sure oh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be the only, yeah, but thank you. And um, I started realizing that what are we doing as organizations to build an inclusive environment where you're only or your token, and hopefully it's a temporary token, and I'll get into that, but where everybody feels a sense of belonging and where everybody can thrive and show up as their authentic selves. You know, oftentimes in leadership, since you're moving up, it can feel cliquish, right? You have a group of people that have worked together for so long um, that when there's an outsider, if you will, coming in, unless there's an intentional mindset to build an environment where that person can come in and feel like they're authentic selves, then ultimately you start feeling like the outsider that you have been, you know, that you may potentially be treated as. So I thought, okay, what do I want to do for the next span of my career? I want to do the things that I'm doing part-time, if you will, on the side with organizations, which is building diversity councils, focusing on DEI groups, employee resource groups. How do we look at policies and procedures through this equity lens and say, are we promoting 
people from underrepresented groups at the same rate that we're promoting non um, minority groups. And I don't even like to say minority groups. I know people use that. The language matters. So now we pivoted from pivot, pun intended, from using minority <laughs> to underrepresented because minority can make it sound like you are less than and nobody in an underrepresented group is less than. Wow, that's really interesting. I've never heard that, but that makes perfect sense to use it yeah. that way. Now we say, no, we, it's underrepresented because I heard this somewhere else. I did not make this up. But one person is a token, two people are required, and three people are a voice. And so when you keep that in mind, there are two parts of building inclusive cultures. It's one, how to build a culture where everybody can thrive together. But secondly, how do you build a culture where you no longer have a token? And where you now have no one person representing anybody from a certain age group, a certain race, a certain gender, a certain sexual orientation, a certain disability status. There are so many people in the mix that you kind of eliminate this notion of being a token. So I pivoted out of commercial real estate and thought, this is what my passion is. So now my consultancy helps organizations learn how to build inclusive cultures that are diverse that the leadership group represents the community that you're serving, regardless of your industry, and that everybody feels like they can show up and bring value as their authentic selves, not have to assimilate, but you're celebrated because of your uniquenesses. So so go back a little bit. You said that you sure. were kind of doing this part-time. Obviously, it was a passion, so we often start our passions in that way. Yes. So you started, how did you begin to, like you said, you put some of these councils together and these organizations, committees, you know, whatever you would call them at that time. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? And what did you say to your peers to say, we need to be doing this, let's join together? Oh, that's a good question. So I will say this firsthand, there has always been a need to have resource groups where people feel like they can come to a, um, a safe space and talk about things that feel good, that may not feel good, and what do we do? And I'll caveat this by saying those safe spaces do not mean that only the people from that underrepresented group are members. We need allies as well that are equally as vested in the mission. So I will say that there are certain organizations that say we want to build inclusive cultures and we want to implement DEI strategies, but we just don't know where to start. We don't want to do the wrong thing. We don't want to say the wrong thing. And so oftentimes people get... Um, I like to call it paralysis, analysis, paralysis. When you think right. about it so much that if you're paralyzed, you don't do anything. Absolutely. So some organizations come and they say, hey, we want to build employee resource groups, for example. So oftentimes it's tied to a corporate sponsor, maybe like a CEO, a board member. It's oftentimes tied to your sustainability program, your uh, ESG programs, the S being social, which represents some of these DEI initiatives. And those groups will come together and say, let's build a resource group. So when we built the former company that I worked with, right. we started a women's group. And I was asked to be someone that led the remote offices. So if we weren't one of the hubs to lead a remote office group of women that could lend their voices to the things that we would like to see as women throughout the organization. So we started there. And then I pivoted into becoming co-chair and then chair, inviting guest speakers, talking honestly and openly about the things that can plague women in a male-dominated industry. And so it kind of started with people just saying, hey, Jamie, can you help us build this? Now, I say part-time with air quotes because when you are working in an environment like that, your day-to-day -day job is your, your priority. Yeah. 
um, your priority, right. um, your primary focus, but all of the DEI related stuff tends to be something that you're doing on the side part-time. You're not really getting compensated additionally for it. Right. It is a passion project. Right. So you're trying to juggle in essence, two jobs. One that is your primary day-to-day that you can hire to do. Second, which is a voluntary led initiative, but that carries that much more passion where you're just willing to sacrifice and put more time and effort into doing it. So long-winded way of saying, a lot of the times it starts with an ask and someone recognizing the need, asking for people to help guide those initiatives, and then sacrificing your time, but you're sacrificing it because it means something to you. Because where they fall flat is when you don't have full-time support from an executive leadership team and ultimately yes. they lose momentum and they, they fall off. But I think that's the key part is making sure you have support from leadership groups that truly believe in it and it's not just a check-the-box effort. Yeah, and I think when you say truly believe in it, I think some people don't even understand what they – I mean, I think it's much easier with when you talk about women, like women's groups. Like, you know, I want to support women, yeah. women – but, you know, when you talk about DEI, which is a variety, like you said, I mean, there was a whole variety mm-hmm. of, 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 you know, people that are underrepresented. That, right. That's an interesting – yeah, it's very interesting. So I didn't know if people truly understood it. <laughs> You know, you've explained to me that some of your corporate clients sometimes think that they are DEI compliant, for lack of a better term, and truly don't realize that they're doing some things wrong. Talk Mm -hmm. about that. Absolutely. I think that, first of all, people think that DEI is a new concept. It's not. DEI has been around for a long time, for 20 plus years. The name has just evolved. But the... Um, the DEI field has existed for a while. It just continues to evolve and things continue to be added to it as more voices are put behind it. I will say that. I think that with the George Floyd murder in 2020, it elevated um, the voices of people that have had enough and that recognized that we need to make sure that there was equity in this country and how people are treated and then you translate that language over into the corporate environment, it's the same thing. We need to make sure that there's equitable practices, that there are equitable practices throughout your organization. So some organizations prior to that period thought, oh, we're doing everything fine. And we don't really need to call it DEI because we're already kind of having these conversations around diversity and equity and inclusion. I think what people started realizing is that we needed to take a step back. We need to redefine what DEI is today, what that means, and that each word within the DEI acronym means something different independently, and collectively it means something different. Um, So I think it started with, let's define diversity. Diversity is a mix of differences. Kind of goes back to age and veteran status and race and gender. But diversity also means political views. It means religion. It means personalities. You know, diversity, again, is a mix of differences within an organization. Um, And then when we move over to the equity, we're talking about equalizing the playing field. Are we providing resources and mentorship and sponsorship to people that need additional resources to catch up? There's not a handout. It's not considered a handout. It should not be considered a handout, I should say. 
but it's how am I equalizing the playing field and providing resources to people that are still trying to catch up from systemic things that have caused them not to be where they should be today. And I find that so, what you had said to me when we had talked before, which I thought was really interesting, is there are some things that, that organizations that you've worked with are doing that, innocently enough, they want to be doing the right things, they want to be inclusive, but they often don't even realize that some of what they're doing is not that way. Do you have some examples of those things? Because I found that really interesting. Just, you know, for me, just... You know, mm-hmm. a quick background. I grew up in, you know, in, in suburbia out in Westchester County in New York. I didn't, I never saw a person who didn't look like me until wow. I went to college. I mean, I truly didn't. So, and, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, pretty advanced and woke or whatever the words are today. But at the end of the day, I probably don't understand some of the things that do come across in writing in corporations. You know, there are people like me out there that we have all intention of doing the right thing, but we sometimes sure. don't know. So what are some of those things that some of us can learn from and realize and, and not think, you know, and, and haven't been thinking about, you know, that probably isn't the right way to approach that. I love that question, Greta. Thank you. I would say um, the lowest hanging fruit is to take a deep look at your teams. Look at your organization. Pull out an old school org chart. Look at who the demographic makeup of the people that are at the staff level, at the mid-management level, at the senior level, senior management level, at your executive, at your board level. Look at who you have on your team. Look at the positions that they hold and look at the demographic makeup of each individual in their position. And start noticing if there are trends. So if you start noticing that there is a trend and who you have in these leadership level roles versus who you have at a staff level role, look at that and then dig deeper. Okay, what has what have our hiring practices been? Are we allowing people to say, I have a perfect friend for this role. Let me pass this resume along to human resources and kind of skirt through the process because they trust my judgment and therefore, they'll maybe hire this person that I've known and that I've worked for with for 20 years. Yeah. Now, while some people adopted that practice and thought that that was harmless because it's a referral program, what that opens the door for is bias. You're not having someone go wow. through the same hiring processes. Do you have interview scripts so that you are asking the same, same questions to the same candidates for the same positions so that you don't have your unconscious biases impact your ability to truly give this candidate a true um, run at, if you will, of the, of the interview. Do you have a rubric so that people are rating your candidate fairly? Do you have a panel interview so that it's not just one person giving their feedback because that one person may have biases they're, they're not even aware of? Right. We tend to gravitate toward people that think and look like us. That may not be the best person for the role that you're hiring, but our natural inclination is to say, man, I'm an extrovert. I would love to have another extrovert on my team. That'd be awesome. But that introvert could be the best fix because they provide that balance. But if you're looking for people that look and think and act like you, your biases are creeping in. So I encourage organizations, look at your interviewing scripts. If you don't have any, create some. Look at the language that you're incorporating into your job descriptions. Are they, I mean, 
taking an equity an equitable look at that is the language inclusive do you have things in place where if you're a nursing mother that there's a place for your nursing mothers to go so they don't have to go into the side do you have a room in your organization where people need to pray during the day that they can go and pray and have quiet time and peace? There are things like that that people may not necessarily think about. You think I'm doing just fine. But it's one, creating an environment where your diverse population can still thrive and do something in. But it's also creating um, structure around the way that you are hiring and then how you're promoting. Look at your promotional. Look at your promotions over the last three to five years. Is there a pattern? Have the majority of the promotions been, and I'm making this up, um, 40-year-old white men? <clears throat> Are there trends in who's being promoted? Are you looking at the educational backgrounds, the lived experiences that may offset college time? Are you really creating an environment where everybody can interview and then be hired and then be promoted on the same playing field? So that, to me, is low-hanging fruit, looking at your hiring practices, looking at your promotion rates. Um, I would say the other thing that's important is to look at your standard operating procedures. Oftentimes, those are written when you're starting an organization, and you may add things from here, you know, from time to time. Rarely, though. I think think they're written, Written. and somebody goes, okay, that job's done, and they don't look at it again. (laughs) Right, right, right. But there may be things that seemed fine back 10 years ago that now through this equitable lens, you realize, oh, we probably shouldn't have that or we should update that language. So I would say things like that, they seem um, simple, but it takes time and effort. And that's where like a consultancy can come in and say, let me look at your operating procedures. Let me read your interviewing scripts. Oh, you don't have any? Okay, let's create some. Let's look at your compensation data, your promotional rates, your hiring rates. Let's look at your job descriptions. Let's look at your board and committee um, covenants and bylaws. Let's look at all of that. What does your board of directors look like? Is it reflective of the community that you're serving for your organization? That's so interesting. So interesting. So why should organizations care about implementing this besides checking the box and saying, you know, we're good corporate citizens and we check the box or we we sponsor whatever it is locally that fits into what they believe it would be considered under the the DEI umbrella? What else is in it for them besides just, well, we did what we were supposed to do. We're good. Mm -hmm. I love that question also. I'm full of them, Jamie. I'm just full of them. (laughs) Bring them, Greta. I love this. Um, I would say it's no different than diversifying your investment portfolio. So, you know, investing one-on-one, you say don't put all of your money or all of your eggs into stocks because they're volatile. I love that analogy. Love that analogy. That helps people understand. I like it. Right? You diversify. Stock, high risk, but high reward. But you have to be able to ride the wave of stock. Bonds will level that out a little bit. Real estate, now people have REITs, which I I worked for for 20 years. Now they have REITs as a component of their investment portfolio because they're stable and you'll get dividends, right? So just like you diversify your investment portfolio, you should diversify your talent. Because each component of your portfolio, each component of the people on your teams and in your talent are bringing something unique to balance the value of your organization. 
Diversity of thought introduces new ideas. If you've had the same people working together in the same roles for 10 years, chances are there aren't yeah. a lot of new ideas swirling around. Yes, so true. So when, when I diversify, you know, if you have a team full of baby boomers and you bring in some millennials, they're going to give you some fresh meat and some fresh ideas. Doesn't mean everything they say is right. Doesn't mean everything the baby boomers say is correct. But you're diversifying that. the thought, the strategy, um, a lived experience from a 40 plus year old black woman may be a different lived experience, probably is a different lived experience than someone else. Right. So how do we that. ask Jamie more about her experience, her lived experience, her professional experience, her educational background? Are there things that we can pull from that and say, you know what? We didn't even think about that because we've been working in this homogeneous environment yes. for so long that we're losing sight of all the value that's floating around us with a diverse population of people on our teams. That's so true. I mean, you and I have talked mm-hmm. several times, and I always find mm-hmm. everything that you say and what you do so interesting, but <clears throat> that right there, wow. So what are, mm-hmm. what are some common myths and uh, misunderstandings about what you do? Because I don't think people understand. I mean, mm. <clears throat> listen, I, my understanding when we first talked is, you know, you kind of go in, you do a talk for either the leadership of an organization or, or the whole organization, mm-hmm. and they get a little bit of rah-rah and then walk away and go, okay, you know, again, check the box. I know okay. that's not what you do because that doesn't make change. I mean, I've been in the business world mm-hmm. a long time. Change doesn't happen in one time. So what are right. some of those common myths about what you do? And then what, what kind of things do you do besides what you've talked about with looking at some of the hiring sure. practices and things like that? Sure. Um, I think the common myth about not just what I do, but what the majority of DEI professionals do right. is that we are coming in there to your organization to blame people. And I think that is a common myth, like, oh, they're hiring a DEI professional because something's wrong and they need to find someone to blame and then they have to figure out how to fix it. And I think that's a common myth um, because people don't understand truly what DEI professionals can bring. And there's, there are no two DEI professionals that are the same. Everybody has their different approach. Sure. There's diversity in the DEI field, pun intended. So I would say that's a myth that we're coming in um, to blame people. I think the better way of looking at it or the correct way of looking at it is we recognize that there is a need for improvement as it relates to building diverse and equitable and inclusive workspaces. It doesn't mean you're not doing anything. It just means that there's room for improvement. So I think if we change the narrative from us coming in to fix as opposed to coming in to enhance or to incorporate if there's nothing to enhance, changing this that language will help people better understand what we are here to do and what we represent. I would say that in addition to the hiring rates and the promotional rates, one thing that I really enjoy doing and that I am certified to do as a qualified administrator of this assessment called the Intercultural Development Inventory. A lot of words. (laughs) So layman's terms is that it is an assessment that I administer, an internationally accredited assessment um, that helps us understand our intercultural competence. In other words, how well can we interact with people from different cultural backgrounds? And so the assessment can be given to everybody. Some organizations that I've worked with prefer to start at the leadership level because things trickle down. Mm. And we give this assessment and say, in order for us to change our behaviors, 
But to understand our behaviors, we have to understand our mindsets. Mindsets influence our behaviors. If we're thinking one way, we're going to behave a certain way. So this um, assessment allows us to understand our competence today, and it places you along the continuum of intercultural competence, where we aspire to be competently, if you will, related to culture, and then how do we bridge the gap between the two? So and, that's and I one think, other thing that my yeah, organization does. It, that's brilliant. And I think, you know, and I've been in the, you know, sales and management and training industry forever, and everybody wants to start out, here, take my people and make them better or train them, right? But you have to start with an assessment because no matter right. what anybody says or even what we believe as, as trainers, as, you know, mm-hmm. consultants, it's important to see it on paper and, and look at both sides right. and say, okay, here's, here's what I see, here's what this says, you know, let's figure that out. So I think that's super, super important. Absolutely. Yeah. So Thank for, you. For our audience today, which is a variety mm-hmm. of, you know, executives, leaders, individuals, sure. all in different varies, uh, varieties of business, sure. what do you think their biggest takeaway from all of this? What's something that you can kind of summarize and give them a takeaway today? Hmm. I would summarize this by saying, number one, that my organization works with educational institutions. We work with nonprofits. We work for corporations. We don't pigeonhole ourselves because DEI is industry related and it is people related. So we're not um, only focused on one industry over another. I'll caveat that by saying. Caveat. Caveat by saying that. Um, I would say... And can you repeat the question, Greta? I want to make sure yeah, the, the your biggest takeaway. I mean, what, yeah. what, what do you want to leave people with today after our conversation that you think will, will resonate? One of the, you know, the the one thing, as they say. Ooh, the one thing that I would want everybody to take away from this today is DEI is not a sprint; it's a marathon. It's been a marathon that we've all been running for years, some longer than others, in order to really implement a sustainable DEI program. It requires you to lift the hood up of your organization, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Just because there are things that you can do better does not mean that you are a terrible employer or person or employee, but everybody, including myself, we have room for improvement. Cultural competence is the key common factor in a a sustainable DEI program. Diversity plus intercultural competence gives you inclusion. The mix of differences plus an understanding of our cultural competence will allow us to build an inclusive working environment for our team members. So I would say understand your individual and collective leadership group intercultural competence through an assessment that's tangible that we can compare against, we can set benchmarks against, we can measure, use that as a springboard to then take you to the next step, which is now that we understand our mindsets, we can impact our behaviors. And in order to do that, we need to take a look at everything going on within our organization from a standard operating procedure standpoint, from a human capital standpoint, our people are our biggest asset. Are we creating an environment for our biggest assets to thrive in and to add their value. And what are we doing to make sure that our leadership group is reflective of the communities that we are serving? 
And how can I ensure that everybody is getting an equitable chance for being hired and for being promoted? And if that is what your vision is for your organization, then let's have a conversation because there we meet you where you are. We're not here to tell you where you need to go. We're here to meet you where we are, where you are today, and then come up with a strategy to help you get to where you want to be. And that's so, the value of So in that in that line, Jamie, which is exactly where we're going, how does somebody reach reach you, reach out to you? What, what's the information that they can, uh, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Sure. You can take a look at my website, which is jbh.enterprises. Some people want to add the .com at the end. Please yeah. don't. I don't know where that will take you, but it won't take you to my website. It is jbh.enterprises. Um, and I think from there, you can access all of my my phone number, my email address, um, and then dig a little bit deeper into my background, my profile, and into the other work that we provide. Good. JBH.Enterprises. And .Enterprises kind of serves like the .com. There's a lot of different ones now, so that's one of them. That's what makes sense. Absolutely. And yeah. that's our company name, so it worked well together. And then you can email me. I'll add this as well at okay. Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at JBH.Enterprises. And um, I look forward to having a conversation and seeing that there's something that we can do collaboratively. That would be great. I Thank you so much for taking time with us this morning. I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to go thank ahead and uh, say goodbye to everyone, and I want you to hang out with me for another two minutes. We can have a little bit of after uh, questions. Thanks. Thanks.